This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. For more than 20 years, the UNC Asheville Center for Diversity Education has been in the forefront of conversations about how our community, our state, our nation successfully navigates the growing diversity of our population. That success is fundamentally tied to how well we know and understand the diverse backgrounds from which we come. Today, Marcus and I want to have a conversation with the Center for Diversity Education's founding director, Ms. Deborah Miles. We'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and as always, I'm pleased and happy to be here with you all in the audience, but also happy to be here in the studio with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how is it going? Pleasure to be here, brother. I hope you're well. I'm excited to to discuss the issue of diversity. This is one of the uh, perhaps most persistent um, topics of discussion um, locally and nationally. Nationally, So I think it's a very pertinent conversation. It really is. We're becoming such a much more diverse uh, Mm -hmm. society. And some people would like to resist that, but I yeah. think it is, you know, we, we have to go with it. And learning to understand each other, I think, is very important. And Marcus, as I was thinking about this conversation in this particular show, I couldn't help but think of a quote from uh, Martin Luther King. Again, I'm always thinking of these quotes, you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. my wheelhouse as a historian. But Dr. King once said that an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. You know, brother, I really think that that is a wonderful quote. And I'm wondering, you know, I wonder mm-hmm. when I think about that, what does that say to people? What does it say to you? Yeah, well, I think what it reminds me of is one of the uh, principal ironies of, of, of living in, in American society. Namely, uh, we do inhabit this uh, diverse, this diverse space, mm-hmm. diverse in terms of um, ethnicity, in terms of culture, in terms of religion, etc. But the reality is that uh, we, we live within a sort of economic system uh, that rewards individualism, mm-hmm. uh, that, re- that rewards sort of um, a, a sort of narrow, selfish focus on one's own subjectivity, one's own um, sort of interest. So the question becomes, you know, how do you, how do you, construct a life for yourself in a capitalistic, individualistic ethos mm-hmm. that is reflective mm-hmm. of the of insight that the king is sharing here. That's so, true. Yeah. And it's not it's not easy, especially not easy. in, in yeah. this country that we call America, because it's so much a fundamental part of who Absolutely. we are. We kind of celebrate this kind of individualistic mm-hmm. uh culture that we have here mm-hmm. but, but but community is important you mm-hmm. know and as you're saying i mean this gets us into discussions about community but in thinking about how we live together as, mm-hmm. as people and getting out of ourselves has been one of the things i think that i've enjoyed the most about being on the faculty at unc Asheville and the fact that the liberal arts is such, is such a fundamental part of what the university is mm-hmm. that it is an opportunity for you to engage mm-hmm. other cultures and other people to gain that understanding to see us not so much as these different ethnic groups but more as common human beings right and i think one of the things that i've appreciated about conversations that i've had um with other faculty members such as yourself and others Mm -hmm. um, at unc Asheville, uh revolves around the the notion that diversity encompasses much more than just um race or ethnicity 
uh, or even religion and culture, mm-hmm. but it also has to do with things like ways of knowing, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, Absolutely. Ways of being in the world. So it encompasses these sort of broader considerations that I think in, in, in important ways uh, nuance, deepen, and enrich uh, our conversations about diversity and even what we mean. Because to me, another issue is what the hell do we mean when we invoke this language of right. diversity? Right. Um, you know, whose perspective is being privileged, whose uh, point of view is being, is not being privileged. Right. So, And I'm going to tell you, so that is a good segue into the next mm. segment of the show because here in Asheville, few people have done more than Deborah Miles to help us develop this broader concern for all humanity. And she's been doing that work through mm. the Center for Diversity Education. And so we want to come back and have a conversation with Miss Miles. So stay with us and we'll be back in a moment. So welcome back to the Waters and Harvey Show. Uh, thank you for staying here with us. Uh, again, it is great to be here, and I think that this is a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a while. But we have here in the studio with us here at Blue Ridge Public Radio here in Asheville, North Carolina, Mrs. Deborah Miles, who is the founding director of the Center for Diversity Education. Um, she will be retiring next month after 23 years of leading the, the, the center, and I have been trying to live in denial for a very long time about this um, about this coming uh, retirement, and have been trying to um, to put blocks in Deborah's way to keep her mm-hmm. at the university because she and I have worked very closely together. But Deborah, we want to thank you for taking the time to come in here and join us today. So Certainly. welcome to the show. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you one of the things that's great is that you cannot go anywhere in Asheville and not find someone who mm. does not know. Deborah Miles. I mean, she is well known throughout the city. And Deborah, uh, you know, when when I when I get that, I said, I wonder how that makes Deborah feel. So how does it feel to be so well known here in the Asheville community? Well, you know, uh, Asheville is the biggest city I've ever lived in. So uh, growing up in small towns in Arkansas, everybody knew everybody. So it sort of seems normal to me that and I mean, I've lived here for 40 years and 43 years and worked in various communities, and uh, my husband, Mark Rudow, has worked in various communities. So in between the two of us, I really – there are a lot of people. And <laughs> well, that feels good. It is. And, and, you, good. and you have a lot of friends here in this city, yeah. I can tell you that. Well, there was quite the local celebrity, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> without a doubt. So you mentioned that, that Asheville is the largest city you've ever lived in, which leads me to ask, uh, where was home prior to Asheville. Right, and I'm glad we're going to say a little bit about that because I think our our early years have a big impact. And I I grew up in um, the earliest years in Delta, Arkansas, very close to the Mississippi River, Mm. and then later moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas, which was a very metropolitan place compared to the the little delta towns we lived right. in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Deborah, I had the opportunity, which I counted as one of those uh, very rich opportunities that I had to meet your father. Mm-hmm. Um, who, can you tell us a little bit about growing up there? Because he was a minister, something that you mm-hmm. share in common with both Marcus and I. So, oh, I didn't know and, that, Marcus. And, and I'm going to tell you, that, you know, I have, for those of you who know Deborah, know, knows that she has this spirit of service that she just gives um, so much of herself. And I know. So I got that sense from your father as well. And knowing my own father and having met Marcus's father as well, it's a, a part of who they are. So mm-hmm. th- can you tell us a little bit about your experiences of growing up with your father and how he's influenced your work? 
Yeah, I would say both my parents really felt called to do the work that they did. My father was very involved in all kinds of social justice work, as was uh, my mother. Mother was a very uh, early feminist, which was hard to do in Arkansas in the 60s and 70s. Um, and my dad was very involved in the civil rights movement and all those little towns, which, you know, that, that included we were living in Eudora when my dad, when the Little Rock um, Central High School mm-hmm. desegregation happened. So mm-hmm. he was very involved in that. And he always came at it from a, a, a deeply scriptural that this is the work of the church to, mm-hmm. to desegregate. Um, and and obviously it should have been the work all along, and it's still very disturbing to him even these many years later that uh, all of our institutions, including our religious institutions, have a still have a long way to go. Right, Deborah. You know, as a historian, when you think of Arkansas, you know, you can't help but think of the hardcore resistance to these mm-hmm. these civil rights efforts. So, was your father and your mother unique? In, in that area of Arkansas, uh, did they have people who they considered strong allies? Uh, you know, I think we got run out of, of two towns mm. uh, because of it. And no, I would not say in those two towns that I think um, in, in one town, Dad had a, um, an anonymous article in the newspaper that somebody found out that it was him, and we left pretty quickly. All right. Um, but my my parents later, after I moved to Asheville, moved to Little Rock, and I would say in Little Rock there were uh, there was especially through the public school system there was a strong effort to build allyship. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and Deborah, that makes me think about you know the conversations that we're having about the relationship. And I've heard people using the term the urban and rural divide, and I really don't like that term. I you know I've argued that we should look more at maybe the urban and rural differences, you know, mm-hmm. because, again, that's getting to this whole common humanity. But hearing you talk about how things were in a place like Little Rock, let's make you think about the difference that that uh, an urban area does provide and an opportunity to kind of be, you know, to to be a little bit much broader in your thinking because of the, the access that you have to institutions. Certainly, and I, I, I wasn't aware of your father's work in social justice, so it really helps to provide some context for mm-hmm. me in terms of uh, the work that you've done at UNC Asheville, which which leads me to to, to sort of um, to ask, Deborah, could you say a little bit more specifically about what, what compelled you to, to, to found the Center for Diversity Education at UNC Asheville? What did you observe? What did you experience? Uh, that that motivated that decision. Mm-hmm. Well, there were several sort of things leading up to it, but I, I think probably uh, I'll start with this part. Uh, our children had started going to the Asheville City School System, and while everything had changed in terms of who was sitting in those seats in the school mm-hmm. system, this is in the late 1980s, very little had changed about what students were being taught in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, together with some other folks that y'all will recognize from UNC Asheville, including um, Dee and Charles James mm-hmm. and Dwight and Dolly Mullen and Tracy Monk Darlin and some other people, we formed a PTO committee, the Multicultural Committee at Isaac Dixon, to begin to look at how do you change the curriculum. And one of those things was to go to uh, the Asheville City School Superintendent and to ask about and, – and we also went with some local rabbis because it was not just a race thing. It was also a religious point of view um, 
how could we be more inclusive of mm-hmm. all kinds of people? And the superintendent said, well, you know, we only teach what's in the standard course of study, and it's not in the standard course of study, so you know, we, we're busy mm-hmm. with all kinds of things. And I'd never heard of the word standard course of study, so <laughs> back then there was no Internet, so I ordered these really thick three-wing binders and got my yellow highlighter out and went through the social studies curriculum and the literature curriculum and the art curriculum and said, you know, we're supposed to be teaching this stuff. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, tried to do it through the school system, but it's really hard to change these big institutions. It's hard to get them to, to move. move. So we thought, well, you know, look at what the health adventure is doing. They're really adding to a, a whole other understanding of health and well-being, which was a museum at the time. Uh, so we could do that as a modeling opportunity. So uh, through the support of the Jewish Community Center, I uh, started this one program where we c- called Festivals of Light. And back then, if they talked about diversity, it was Christmas around the world, mm-hmm. which that's sort of hard to imagine now. But now now we know, and partly, again, because of technology and people coming closer together, we know a lot more about the different ways people celebrate and mm-hmm. observe and um, so we started Festivals of Light at the Jewish Community Center. Uh, we got some uh, great help from the YMI and from the Greek Community Center and uh, from the Korean community, and we would set up these little vignettes uh, and uh, uh, work with docents and then bring the students in and talk about how do, how do folks in Korea celebrate the New Year? Mm-hmm, or or mm-hmm. what is Kwanzaa, and how is that celebrated? Or Diwali, or or Hanukkah, or Christmas in Greece? How is that different than Christmas in America? All right. Um, so it, that's where it started. That started. It's a different. That that leads me to ask a question about narratives because you've talked a lot about narratives. Marcus and I talk a lot about this, and I know you all, as our listeners, have heard us have these conversations about narratives, the narratives that we construct about ourselves. So. But I don't think that we're always conscious of of these narratives and how they're constructed, the politics that go into constructive narratives. Why do you think it's important for us to be consciously aware of how narratives are constructed? Well, you know, we've got a lot of brain research now, and that's another thing that's changed over the last 23 years is we're able to map the brain, and we understand when our brain begins to fire up. And we, we're beginning to understand the role that narrative plays as we construct not only our understanding of ourselves, but our understanding of the people around me, around us. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in particular about Carolyn Finney, who is a, a real hero of mine. She wrote a book called uh, Black Faces, White Spaces. Mm-hmm. And she was trying to address the narrative of how is it that, that um, in, in her work, how is it that the African-American is, is conceived of in relationship to the environment? And she was coming at this from a standpoint of not feeling that the black community was very included in environmental conversations. So she really helped me understand how white-centered our narratives are, how male-centered our narratives are, how ableism-centered our narratives are, and how important it is for when we think we know a story to come at it from multiple points of view, to search out a, a almost a counter-narrative, just so that we have a more complex understanding of 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 the world around us. So mm-hmm. Carolyn Finney would wrote this book, Black Faces, White Spaces, and she talks about the work of um, uh, Audrey Peterman, and who has yes. made national parks. I think right. Audrey and Frank have been here, or John Francis, who stopped talking for mm-hmm. 
15 years and walked the United States several times to talk about global warming, and this was back in the 60s and 70s, or Ray Mapp, who is organizing outdoor Afro for hiking tours. So uh, I think that we, we really, I really want to encourage, and that's the center's work has been a lot around exhibits, mm-hmm. and we've really worked to, if, if we're talking about whose story is told in the classroom, who what other stories can be told in a classroom? Right. Yeah, and I'm, I can't help but to be reminded of a, a TED talk that the uh, Nigerian author uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie um, gave, entitled "The Danger of a Single Story," mm-hmm. where she addresses this this very issue. I've used this in class quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but Deborah, what would you say? So, reflecting on the the the, the CDE's. Um, uh, 23 year history um, is there is there and, and this may be an unfair question right <laughs> but is, is there is there an accomplishment um, or or a moment perhaps in that history that really sort of stands out to you as perhaps a defining moment or defining accomplishment in the CDE's history uh, there's so many things that I mean I could have never known that I could have never known that globalization was going to happen or 9-11 mm-hmm. or the or the internet or just so much has changed brain research, so much has changed about how we understand ourselves as humans interacting with each other and with our environment. Um, but I, I do think there's there are a couple of things. I'm going to focus on one um, because it it's still so astounding to me, and um, those are the uh, enslavement records mm-hmm. that um, my husband, Mark Rudolph, found in the Register of Deeds back before there was an Internet. And the fact that those... Um, primary source documents exist pretty much unless it was burned down in every register of deeds from Maine to Texas is a wealth of research that I still am very hopeful that in 10 to 20 years will have uh, a dramatic effect on on conversations including around reparations and how do we how do we think about uh, there's no undoing but how do we face it I I believe that our country is still not faced what Mm -hmm. happened um, during that time period or the sub- subsequent time periods after that. And I believe that these primary source documents will give us another narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, Deborah, I had the uh, pleasure of working on this project with you. And um, and I love the title of it because it's people, not property, right? You know, it's but to, to see those records and to see how human beings were treated as if they were property, I think it really it, it's like a – it slaps you in the face when you look at the primary sources. And, you know, as a historian, Marcus, as a scholar, we, we are looking at primary sources all the time. But I have uh, enjoyed seeing the reaction of people in the general, general public who have had an opportunity just to have one of those documents in their hands and then to read what it actually says. So I think that this was a wonderful uh, project of the Center for Diversity Education to highlight. Now, you've done so many other projects, too. I can't help but think that I know that you want to say something about a score which was the a score which was a big piece of of the work that you did and i think that you uh through the center's work really gave a rebirth to that history in a way and that that is such a remarkable gift especially for this community can i say a little bit about you can yes please do so i and i think this is such an important story because because how it got found out. So uh, Dr. Dwight Mullen lives in the Kenilworth neighborhood, mm-hmm. and so does Marvin Chambers. And Marvin Chambers was one of the founders of ACE Corps, and he got to talking to Dwight about 
the work he he had done as a high school student to desegregate the lunch counters, the library, the buses, the swimming pools, Bell Telephone, UNC Asheville, all these places that it's really hard for us to to imagine, theaters and downtown department stores. Uh, And so he encouraged Dwight to find a way for UNC Asheville to highlight these stories. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think of all the reasons why it's important to have uh, for our faculty be to be reflective uh, for our students for the points of view they bring but we don't often think about what it means to have our the faculty living in our neighborhoods right. and the kinds of conversations that happen mm-hmm. just as neighbors walking down the street together right right and De- De- deborah I, I do want to bring up as well you talked about institutional structures and how difficult it can be to get institutions to change. I mean, this is a long history. One of the, one of my favorite books by uh, Stanley Elkins, which is Slavery, which he looks at the institution of slavery, and he talks about how the British were able to work through their institutional structure to end slavery. We weren't able to do that here. And I think that says something, and Marcus addressed the issue of capitalism, and I think that says something about our capitalistic ethos here in this country and how we were unable to do what the British did through through their um, work through institutional structures to achieve that change. You know, you have done a lot of work here to try to get especially the key institutions in this in our city to kind of sign on to efforts to be accountable on these issues of diversity how do you feel that that has gone has that it do you feel good about where we are with that i think i'm beginning to feel good you know it changed especially this kind of change is so deeply rooted and it requires so many pieces to to come to the table. I think the Diversity Engagement Coalition is going to be key to that. Mm-hmm. Um, getting people at the table. If, I've heard this discussed before. If you're pedaling your bicycle, you're, you can go a certain amount of speed. But if you put a bunch of bicycles together and you pedal them all together, if we have a, a common language, if we share some um, some narratives that are complementary, um, we learn from each other's best practices. Um, I think the Diversity Engagement Coalition over the last five years has has done a lot, but over the next five years will especially do even more. Uh, and I think that's especially going to be around the issue of accountability. Um, almost always, if an organization is going to do equity and inclusion work, they do trainings. And standalone trainings by themselves are shown to have marginal effect and sometimes even build resentment in the white community um, so that trainings have to be uh, attached to mentoring or accountability Mm -hmm. for it to be effective. Um, So I'm I'm hoping that that's kind of the direction that we're moving in. Yeah, and there were two things that, that, that come to mind for me, Deborah, um, that I think are related. Uh, one, uh, if you would mind, could you say just a bit about what some of because because you mentioned that you're you're only now beginning to feel <laughs> good about uh, local institutions buying into the diversity project. Uh, what were some of the obstacles that that you observed in terms of you know really getting local institutions in a place where they could take diversity seriously and then secondly uh uh could you could you perhaps talk a bit about some of the partners like some of the partnerships i should say that have emerged um uh over the course of the cde's history around diversity that's great 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 questions you know i think the biggest obstacle to the work of equity and inclusion you know it's interesting how language changes when when i first started out with the work of trying to understand the 
what those terms were. Multicultural was the word people used. Mm-hmm. That was getting really tired, and it was getting a lot of negative talk. So diversity was the new word. Well, now diversity is getting pretty tired, and we're, we're using words like equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the status quo is the biggest obstacle. People like to do with the way they've always done it. It's faster. They know who to talk to. Getting people to change their patterns, build relationships outside of their their circle of context, changing you know that Rolodex. That's an old word too. Um, that's the biggest obstacle. Um, a lot of times people say, "Well, I, I treat everybody the same. I look at everybody the same." Well, we know that that's just not true because all that's brain research. But that also has been the thing to get. We have to get to, and in terms of partnerships, I, I think of, um, um, gosh, uh, everybody's environment is another coalition that we've really been working with, and I think about the work of Mountain True and Dogwood Alliance and Appalachian Trail Conservancy and the real strides they've made around board recruitment. Mm-hmm. How do you hire people? Boy, that hiring pool and how you advertise positions and how you write that job description, that's really central. That's key. That's key. Well, Deborah, it, you know, the, the time is going really fast on us here, but there's so many other areas that we could explore here as we think about uh, these these important issues. But I want to give you a chance because we talked about the fact that you are transitioning now out of the leadership role of the CDE. And I would like to talk to get you to just tell us a little bit about what your hopes are for the Center for Diversity Education as it moves to new leadership and it, it works towards uh, these these goals in the future. Well, that's thank you for asking that. Yeah, I, I think looking forward that, you know, I do a lot of work with 18 to 22-year-olds, and I really have a 60s mindset. And I think this new generation, they have a much more nuanced understanding. So, number one, I'm looking for some – I'm hoping this next person is going to bring a, a fresh mindset that really fits the work of the 21st century. And just to end on a personal note, um, uh, Deborah, we really hope you enjoy retirement. And I hear that you're a new grandmother. <laughs> I am, I am. So, we so. have a four-week-old Talia Simone. Right. So what what are your plans? I know that um, spending time with this new grandchild is a part of that, but mm-hmm. Deborah, you, you will never stop working. So what what do you plan to do uh, after retirement? I, I think just like my mama and daddy who just always felt this com- – compulsion to do this work it's not something that can be laid down so i I do want to keep doing this work and i really want to focus on that accountability piece Um, a number of organizations in nashville have adopted the global diversity and inclusion benchmarks Mm -hmm. um, which i think is a very comprehensive way to restructure our organization so i'm going to be working with folks to do that well deborah again this is i think this is just an important conversation we could continue to just talk to you about that and i hope that Mm -hmm. as you continue continue your work, we'll be able to have you come back in and discuss these with us. I think because your expertise is going to be very needed and valued in this mm-hmm. community as we kind of move forward. But I want to thank you for your service to the university and to our community and to congratulate you on your retirement, congratulate you on being a new a new grandparent, and uh, just wish you well as you as you move on Certainly. to the next phase of your life. So thank you for joining Thanks us. Thanks so much. Deborah. All right. Marcus, that was wonderful. Marcus and I will be back in a moment.
Well, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Waters and Harvest Show. This has been a very good, good show. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of bittersweet because I've had the opportunity, Marcus, to work very closely with Deborah. And I am proud to say that I will be participating in in the work to continue Mm -hmm. what the Center for Diversity Education has already started. And so, but Deborah, in the time that I've come back here to Asheville with my own historical research, you know, working with her has been one of those, a rich joy for me. Yeah, and I, I think her work has been so important. And of course, you know, she's not really retiring. That's right. She's retiring, but she's not retiring. <laughs> That's right. But, but one point that stuck out for me is, is, is how, ironically, the status quo, the status quo. That's true. Is often the biggest ob- obstacle to, to diversity and inclusion and to getting institutions to buy in. So, it is. So having more conversations around the status quo and what it is is, is, is important, I think, well, brother, to keep once, in mind. Once again, you have ended this conversation well, and Marcus and I would like to remind you that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And Marcus and I will be happy to talk to you next time. Take care.